You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And it's my understanding that for the last several months, that as a church, you've been going through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And I'm so happy to be able to, uh, to speak on this wonderful passage right here in, in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And before we get to this chapter, let me just give you a little bit of, of context, a little bit of background on this. And so God's people, the Israelites, they have demanded of God for a king. And God has said already, I'm going to be your king. I'm the best king of all. They say, no, no, you know, that's fine, but we want a human king, a king like all the other nations around us. And God says, fine, if that's what you really want, then I'll, I'll, I'll give that to you. And, and he gives them a king named Saul, and it so happens, the people are very happy because, because he's a big man, and he's tall, he's head and shoulders taller than the rest of the people, and he's handsome and strong, and they're very excited about this, this king that God has given them. But then the story of, of Saul, like you, I'm sure you've been seeing, is, is basically a disaster. It's, it's, it's a tragedy. Why? Because Saul doesn't obey God. He's not faithful to God. How can God bless him? How can God bless the people if he's not faithful? And while Saul is still alive, God says, I've chosen someone else to replace you. And in fact, I've, I've even anointed him. And you can imagine Saul, when he hears that God has anointed a man after God's own heart, while he's still alive, Saul is, is jealous and he's furious, he's angry, he hates David. He wants to kill David. And so David runs for his life into the wilderness, into the, the deserts, into, and he lives in caves. He's being chased like an animal by Saul. And eventually, after many years, Saul finally dies. And even after that, his sons, of course, want to become king. And so David struggles with, with that. And finally, after many years of running for his life, being chased like an animal, of struggling and waiting, finally David becomes king. He establishes his throne. And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we find out one of the first things that he does after he becomes king. And so let's... Uh, read it together, 2 Samuel chapter 9, I'll start in verse 1. It says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, Yes, I'm your servant. And the king said, is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, 
for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage to him and said, What is your servant that you should regard, show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands a servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Huh. Interesting little story here. In fact, it's a very unusual story. It's, it's incredibly surprising. Did you, did you notice something unusual here? David has just taken the throne. Saul has been chasing him for years. He's been running for his life. He's been struggling with Saul's sons who also want the kingdom. Every member of Saul's family is a threat to David's kingdom. And what was a standard thing to do in that time, in that place, in that culture, when a king takes the throne, even nowadays it's, it's true in, in certain parts of the world, the first thing that the king does is he slaughters everyone who is his enemy or anyone who is a, a possible threat to his kingdom. Right? This is what they do. And in fact, we have a good example here in 2 Kings chapter 11. It says, When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. This is standard practice. Okay, what's happening here in this verse, Ahaziah has been the king, and he dies, and his mother, Athaliah, she sees her opportunity. She says, I, I, I should be the queen. I can become the ruler. So what does she do? She kills all of her grandsons, she kills all of her children, she kills all of her nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters, anyone who could possibly take over the throne, she just slaughters them, right? This is what kings, this is what queens do. And so the first question that David asks here in verse 1, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? That was a standard question that any king who's just recently become king, that, that's what they would ask. Is there anyone left of my enemies... Why am I asking that question? So that I can find them and kill them. But why is David asking this question? Look again, verse 1. It says, There's still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. David wants to find any member he can of Saul's family not to kill them or exact revenge on them, but to show kindness to them. And really, this is what this passage is, is all about. This word kindness comes up 
three times in verse 1, in verse 3, in verse 7. This is a passage about kindness. And this is what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about kindness. Now, I don't know about you, but kindness is not something that I think about very often. I don't really think about kindness. And if you do think about kindness, you know, usually what I think of is a nice person, perhaps, maybe someone who's very polite, someone who minds their manners, someone who says please and thank you, someone who holds the door open and lets the other person go in first, you know, he's a kind person. But, you know, as I've been thinking about this passage, I've been thinking about this, this whole thing of kindness again in these last few days, I realized that kindness is actually something that God takes incredibly seriously. Kindness is very important to God. In fact, if you just think of the fruits of the Spirit, remember the fruits of the Spirit? What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Kindness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. God tells us when somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the things that they manifest is they're incredibly kind. And I don't know what you think of when you think of someone who's filled with the Spirit. Right? They, maybe they speak in tongues or they do miracles or they preach the gospel boldly. Right? God says when you're filled with the Spirit, one of the things that, that, it, that shows is that you're incredibly kind. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's something supernatural. And not only that, Kindness, apparently, is one of the defining characteristics of the kingdom of God. I don't know if you realize that when David is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem over Israel, this is probably the closest that we get to seeing God's kingdom being manifested here on earth. This is perhaps the closest that we have in all of history. What does it look like when God's kingdom comes? What does it look like? You know, of course, there's blessing, there's joy, there's power, there's righteousness, there's justice. But maybe, even more than all those things, there's kindness. One of the defining characteristics of God's kingdom. It's one of the defining characteristics of God's people. God takes kindness very, very seriously. And so this kindness is something that we actually need to talk about. This is much more than just being a nice guy and minding your manners. And so what I want to do for the rest of the time that we have this morning is to ask and answer two questions. Number one, what does true kindness look like? And secondly, how do we become people who are truly kind? What does true kindness look like? And how do we become that person? That truly kind person. So, first question, what does true kindness look like? At least three things that we learn about true kindness here from David's example in this passage. Number one, true kindness is intentional. True kindness is intentional. Again, verse one, and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? I want you to think about this. Who's the one taking the initiative to show kindness here? 
right? It's David. David is the one who's got this idea. He's got this kindness in his heart. He is determined to show kindness. Is there anyone out there that I can show kindness to? I've got to show kindness. Huh. I think that's very important because, you know, even when we are kind, at least for me, I know, often my kindness is kind of reactionary. Someone comes in front of me, they've got a problem, they've got a need, I feel bad, I feel guilty, I feel sorry for them, say, okay, I can help you out this way, I can give you a loan, I can, you know, counsel you or just talk or whatever. Our kindness is reactive, but David's kindness is proactive, right? It's not Mephibosheth who comes to him and says, oh, look, I'm lame, and I've got these problems, and can you help me? And David says, oh, okay, yeah, you're right, I feel bad, and I feel guilty, probably I can give you a nice meal in the palace, maybe I can even build you a house. No, David's the one taking the initiative. Kindness is in David's heart, right? He is looking for a way to express it. That's the first thing that we learn about kindness here in this passage. Kindness is intentional. Second thing, kindness, true kindness, is costly. True kindness is costly. Look at verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. True kindness is incredibly costly. David seeks out this man, Mephibosheth. He finds him, he brings him in on his own initiative, and he, he wants to show this kindness. And, and, and what kind of kindness? He says, I'm going to give you all the land of your grandfather, Saul. Now just remember, who was Saul? Saul was the king. Can you imagine how much land King Saul must have had? And not land out there in the remote places, far away. The best land in the country. David finds Mephibosheth, brings him here and says, it's yours. I'm giving it to you. You know, I just imagine gasps in the king's court. What? What is he doing? Kindness is, it's, it's this... It's not just costly, it's extravagant. It's lavish, it's over the top. But there's even more. He doesn't just give him the land. He says, now Mephibosheth, you're going to sit at my table. You're going to eat at my table. All the days of your life. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. You're going to sit here and you're going to eat with me and my family. You know, this is the highest honor that David could give anyone in the country. You're going to sit at my own table, not just for a day, not just for a week, for the rest of your life. And, you know, Bible commentators tell us when, when David invites Mephibosheth to eat at his table, he's basically adopting him as, as one of his sons. Nobody eats at his table. Every day, every meal, for the rest of their lives, except if you're a son of the king. And David is, is basically saying, I'm making you like one of my own sons. And we see something very interesting. You know, true kindness is, is, is not just sacrificial, it's not just generous. 
It's, it's, it's very personal, isn't it? It's not just a little donation here or there. Right? He doesn't tell Mephibosheth, now take this land, get out of my face, I never want to see you again. Right? He's, he's actually attaching himself to Mephibosheth. It's this incredible intimate relationship that he's inviting Mephibosheth into. But there's one other cost that we have to see here that it's not so obvious, but all the Bible commentators that I read on this passage, they all pointed out, and that is the the security cost of of David's kindness. To have Mephibosheth come and, and sit at his own table to eat with him and his sons, this is where business happens. This is where family business is discussed. This is where decisions are made. Now, Mephibosheth, who's from the enemy's family, is now getting all this insider information every day. Not only that, David says to Mephibosheth, I'm going to give you Ziba, his 15 sons, his 20 servants. He gives them like this army of 36 men. And you say, well, Mephibosheth, he's lame. You know, what can he do? And is that really, you know, a consideration? Well, you know, the, the author of Samuel also tells us that it's not just Mephibosheth, but Mephibosheth has a son. Did you see that towards the end of the passage? He's got a son named Micah. As David gets older, Micah and Mephibosheth are going to get more powerful. Right? This is the way it, it works. And, if, and again, if we think that, oh, that's kind of a little bit out there, Mephibosheth is lame. What can he do? You know, later on, when Mephibosheth, that's a hard word to say, by the way. I have to say it over and over again. But Mephibosheth, when he, you know, his name comes up again in, in chapter 16, you know, we find out there's, there's when, when David is running away from Absalom, he has to leave the throne. Mephibosheth apparently says, that was my chance. And later on, even, we find out it's even more complicated. Ziba, the servant, is also involved in all this kind of stuff. But David is constantly under threat as the king, inviting Mephibosheth. This is not just a nice action. It's not just being nice and generous and kind. There is a real security risk. We find out that that true kindness, it's not just intentional. It's not just costly and sacrificial and, and extravagant and lavish and generous. It's also risky. True kindness is risky. But there's one last thing I want to point out here about, about David's kindness and about kindness in general. That is true kindness is life-changing. It's intentional, it's costly, and it changes lives. It's life-changing. Mephibosheth's life is never going to be the same again. This is a game-changer for him. Right? Everything's changed. You know, if you just think about who Mephibosheth was, his condition at the beginning, right? First of all, we're told at the beginning, when he's first introduced, and did you notice at the very last line, right? He sits at the king's table and blah, 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 and he's crippled in both feet, lest you forget. This is the dominant characteristic about Mephibosheth. He's lame. Imagine being crippled in both feet 3,000 years ago. Right? When you're crippled in both feet, you, you, crutches are of no use. You can't use crutches. 
You think about how cities were 3,000 years ago. They're dirt roads. They're, they're sandy, rocky roads. You can't even use a wheelchair. If Mephibosheth wants to go anywhere, if he wants to do anything, he literally has to be carried. He's completely helpless. He's completely at the mercy of other people. He's completely dependent. And by the way, we're told in, in 2 Samuel chapter 4 how, how he got this way. He wasn't born this way. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 4 verse 4 says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. You just imagine, five-year-old boy, grandson of the king in the royal family, he's probably spoiled, rotten. Everything he's got, everything is going for him, his future is bright. Suddenly news comes, your grandfather, the king is dead, your father is dead, he runs for his life, he falls, and he's lame for the rest of his life. Can you imagine? You know, this man is, 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 is broken. This man is, is literally crippled. Not only is he lame, but we also find out in this, in this passage that he's afraid. In verse 6, when he comes to, to David and he, he falls on his face before him. And I, and I can just imagine his hands are shaking. His whole body is trembling. Probably he started trembling when, when the messenger first came to tell him that King David wants to see you. Right? In his mind, there's only one reason that King David wants to see him. It's not like, oh, wow, this is great. I'm going to get to see the king. Right? There's only one reason in that time, that place, in that culture why the king wants to see the grandson of his former enemy in fact, some Bible commentators that I was reading on this passage, they suggested that as, as, as Mephibosheth falls on his face before David, probably what he would expect, the next feeling to have in his body is a knife in his back or a sword cutting off his head. He's terrified, and you would be too if you were in his position. But not only is he lame, he's afraid, but see how he calls himself in in verse 8, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Dead dog. You know, in Eastern cultures, to call someone a dog is one of the worst insults. It's one of the worst curses that you could, that you could ever give to another person. In, in Hindi, in, in India, you know, the word is kutta. You call someone a, a kutta and it's, it's kind of like it's over, <laughs> right? He calls himself a dog. And not only a dog, but a dead dog. And if you think about it, that's a pretty apt description. And he, in, in that society, he'd be considered useless. Right? He's in hiding. He's just trying to survive day by day. The former grandson of, of, of the king. Right? His life is, is a big tragedy. This is not the way it was meant to be. Right? At one point, his future was so bright. Now he's struggling day by day. He's poor. 
No, but then here's the beautiful thing. Everything changes in this moment as he's in front of the king. And do you, do you see the first word that, that David speaks to, to this man in front of him? Did you see what it was in verse 6? Let me read that again. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, what? Mephibosheth. David knows his name. David calls him by name. It's very interesting, you know, before this, when, when the servants, and David says, is there anybody left in the family of Saul? They say, well, there is this cripple. He's the grandson of Saul. He's the son of he, they never say his name to David. But David has found out his name. He calls him by name. And not only does he call him by name, if you look in, in verse 7, David said to him the second thing, do not fear. Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. This is not a sad day. This is not a scary day. This is a happy day. Why? The third thing he says to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. I was sh I've brought you here not to exact revenge on you, not to kill you, not even to make you feel bad. I've brought you here. I've sought you out so that I can show and lavish kindness on you. Everything changes. Mephibosheth's life is, is never going to be the same again, right? It's, it's just different. Everything's changed. So, dear friends, you know, this is what true kindness actually looks like. It's not just being a nice guy. It's not just being a polite person. It's not just saying your please and thank yous. Right? True kindness is, is intentional. It takes initiative. It's costly. It's generous. It's extravagant. It, it sacrifices for the sake of another. True kindness is even risky. But true kindness changes people's lives. Right? It gives hope. It gives life. And by the way, haven't you experienced that before? Right? Someone shows you kindness, especially if that kindness is, is you know, unexpected. And it's, it's way more than, than you could ever have imagined. And you don't deserve it. And you, and you don't even have words to say. It's, it's literally life-changing. And you know, the, 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 the thing is, as I've been thinking about this again for all of us, when we all do this, we all show this kind of kindness in our own families, with our wives and children, in our, in our offices, with our colleagues and our neighbors, It changes the world. This is God's plan. How he's going to change the world. It's when God's people, right, full of the Spirit, manifesting the kingdom of God, 
right? Show this kind of sacrificial, costly, intentional, life-changing kindness. It, it, it has this impact in this greedy, rude, mean, dark world. It shines. In fact, I'll give you a, a little example of this from history. You know, after the time of Jesus and after the time of the apostles, history tells us that the, most of the believers were living in the Roman Empire. And one of the things that happened in, in several points in time over the, the history of the Roman Empire were these terrible plagues. You might have heard this before. Terrible plagues that just swept through the whole empire, especially in the cities where it's densely packed and sanitary conditions are, are, are so bad. And, you know, this, this disease that's contagious, it strikes and it starts spreading and history tells us that when these plagues started happening, when people started seeing people falling sick and, and dying, most people, what they did was they ran for their lives, literally. They, they ran from the cities. They left their loved ones. They even sometimes and often left their children. Right? But who was it that stayed and, and cared for the sick and the dying? It was, a, it was the Christians. And the Christians got, got this reputation for being these incredibly kind people. And sometimes they also died as they were caring for others. And sometimes, you know, this is really amazing, because they stayed, because they didn't run, some of them actually became immune to the disease. And, and as they became immune, they could... They could be around all these people who had these contagious diseases and sicknesses and were dying, and it wouldn't affect them. And so the, the Christians started getting this reputation. These are like supernatural beings. And this small group of, of, of Christians starts spreading. As they see this unusual, radical kind of kindness being distributed, being displayed by, by the small group of people, and, and eventually the whole Roman Empire becomes Christian. Huh. Amazing. So, last question. How do we become this kind of person, this kind of person that's, that's truly kind? It's easy to be selfish. It's easy to be greedy, like the rest of the world. It's so hard to be kind like this. How do we become that kind of person? Well, the good news is that, that this passage tells us. Right? In fact, it's right here in verse 3. Look what David says in verse 3. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness? Now mark the, the next two words. Of God to him. Is there not still someone left in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Right? David says, this is not my kindness. I am not this kind of a person. Right? This is not something that I just can conjure up on my own. Right? I, I, I'm determined to be a nice person and a nice king and a good ruler. David tells us very clearly, this is the kindness of God. It's inside of me. I've experienced it. I've felt it. Right? This is something supernatural. It's changed my life. It's made me a kind-hearted person. How does this work? Well, you know, the, 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 the most concise way that I could put it 
It's here on the screen. How do we become people who are truly kind? We become truly kind people by experiencing and reflecting God's ultimate kindness towards us. Let me say that again. We become truly kind people, how? By experiencing ourselves and then in turn reflecting to others the ultimate kindness that God has shown to me. Well, what is the kindness that God has shown to me? Well, I can't think of a better picture or image of God's kindness than this passage. You know, a few years ago in, in my church in India, I did a sermon series called Pictures of the Gospel. And I wanted to do a series on the gospel, kind of get back to the basics, make sure that everybody really understands what is the gospel. But I thought, you know, let me, you know, we've talked about this so many times, let me just try to do it in a different way. Instead of just outlining the four spiritual laws or something, let's go back, especially into the Old Testament, and let's find and, and examine and study these, these, these foreshadowings, because the, the Bible is full of them. Like so many images, so many snippets so many shadows that God has given us throughout history in the pages of the Bible that, that, that kind of prepare us for Jesus. So that when Jesus actually comes, we can understand what's going on. It's familiar to us. So I did this series called Pictures of the Bible. And can you guess what is the first passage I preached on in that series? 2 Samuel chapter 9. <laughs> I couldn't think of a, a, a better picture of the gospel than what we've seen right here, right? You think of Mephibosheth, right? Lame, afraid, a dead dog, hopeless, helpless, crippled, broken. Life is just a complete tragedy. Unexpected. This is not the way that it was supposed to happen. Right? Isn't this us? Hurt. Considered useless. Right? At the mercy of others. Right? Life is just one tragic mess. A dead dog. I used to look forward to the future. Now, you know, every day is, is like surviving. I'm in hiding, right? This is us. We're Mephibosheth in so many ways. But then the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of what we had done, right? Simply out of his mercy and his grace. Listen to this. He called us by name. Not just the cripple or the grandson or the son of so-and-so. Right? He knows my name. He knew your name. He knew it even before the creation of the world. And, and now he calls us. He summons us. Not to judge us and to kill us and destroy us as he should have. Right? But to lavish kindness upon kindness upon kindness on us. Right? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is ours. It's ours. It really is. And God says, all of this, everything, is yours. It's all for you. 
You are heirs of the world. You're going to inherit the earth. It's all for you. I'm adopting you as my son, as my daughter. Right? I'm attaching myself to you. Now you're in a relationship with me. You're going to sit at my table forever. Right? In fact, as I was thinking about this, this passage and, and how it relates to us, I couldn't help but think of Psalm 23. Do you remember how Psalm 23 ends? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. You anoint my head with oil. Surely goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. Wow, what kindness. And why? Why would God show us this kind of kindness? You know, such an interesting parallel in this story that I haven't mentioned yet that's really, really important, actually. Why does David show Mephibosheth kindness? Not because he's such a great guy. And not just because he's crippled and he feels bad. It's not, certainly not because of anything that Mephibosheth has done for him. Why does he show us the kindness? Show Mephibosheth the kindness? Because he's Jonathan's son. He says, I'm showing you kindness for Jonathan's sake. Because Jonathan is my friend. I love him. And you are related to Jonathan. You're attached to Jonathan. And so, therefore, you get to have my kindness. And it's the exact same thing with us, isn't it? We don't deserve kindness. We've never done anything for, to God that he should repay us. And yet, it's because he loves his son. And because Jesus died on the cross. And because he rose again. And by faith, we're attached to Jesus. We're related to him. And, 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 and the father loves the son. And he's given all things to the son. And we're in the son. And now everything is ours in Christ. Right? We get all the kindness. How is David? David able to be such a kind person? It's because his king was so kind to him. He experienced kindness. Right? It, it changed his life. It made him a kind-hearted person from the inside. How do we become truly kind people? Like what we've been talking about this morning. Right? It's when we experience the kindness of, of our king. Right? When we realize the condition that we were in. Lame, crippled, hurt, broken, tragic. And now, sons and daughters of the living God, our cup overflows. We're going to dwell in his house forever. It's all ours. You experience that kindness, it changes you, doesn't it? It changes you from the inside. It changes your heart. You actually get a kind heart. The more and more you realize God's kindness towards you. You know, my prayer has been in these last few days as I've been thinking about this message and this morning, you know, for myself and for all of us, oh, God, please, by your spirit, press it on my heart again. Your kindness, where I was not very long ago, 
and where you've brought me, the hope that you've given me, your promises, everything. You experience that, it changes you. You reflect that, it changes the world. It really does. Why don't we bow our heads and, and close our eyes. Let's just take a, a few seconds as we close this morning just to savor again in our hearts the kindness of God towards us, who we were, who, where we are now in Christ. What kind of people we ought to be in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Let's just take a, a few seconds as we wrap up this morning. Father God, thank you for your kindness lavished on us. We're not worthy of anything. You've given us everything. Thank you for changing our lives. Thank you for giving us life. And Lord, I pray, even as we experience that more and more in our hearts, that it would change us, that we would reflect it in the world around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.